1. This morning, we dive into the book of Exodus. Exodus is more than the movie The Prince of Egypt. It's more than just a story of uh, the Lord's Supper. It's more than a story of the Passover. It's about God establishing himself as the sovereign God over all creation and showing his people his holy law, showing their desperate need in him. The law is given halfway through Exodus, and it's not a sense of moral rights and wrongs. It's, it's to show us our incapableness of keeping it on our own. It's to show us His glory, His holiness, and yet His mercy. Because we were never intended to keep the law. We were incapable of it. Just as we see in the story of Exodus. Even as, as Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments, what do the people do? They immediately fall into idolatry. They immediately begin to worship an image of a golden calf. They exchange the glory of God in the image of a cow. If you've never been around cattle, they stink, they're nasty, they're vile animals, they're stubborn animals. And yet, that's what the people of Israel make into an idol to worship. They quickly fell. But again, the hope is there. God is a merciful and patient God. And so He is with each of us. And that's what we're going to see in the story of Exodus. The book of Exodus picks off where Genesis left off. In, in Genesis 37 and then 39 through the end of the book of Genesis, it's all zooming in on the story of, of Jacob, or later named Israel and his family, showing how they went from uh, their land to Egypt, all because Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. And yet, as, as Joseph is there in Egypt, God is preparing the way to save not only Israel, but even the Egyptian people. God is, is sparing them as Joseph has these dreams, and Joseph interprets these dreams, or as Pharaoh has these dreams, and Joseph interprets the dreams for Pharaoh, showing him that famine is coming. And if they will store up food during the years of plenty, they'll be spared in the years of famine. And then if we come to the end of Genesis and, and Joseph dies. His brothers die. Jacob dies. And that's where we pick up in Exodus this morning. Now, we're going to approach Exodus a little differently. If you, You'll notice in your bulletins this morning we're covering Exodus 1 and 2. But we're not going to read all of it. So each week, you're, you're going to have some homework to do, church members. You're going to have some homework to do to read ahead so you know what the text is going to say ahead of time. So, so from now to next Sunday, I encourage you to read Exodus 1 through 4. Take half a chapter, or a little over half a chapter, each day, and, and, and you've got it easy. But read ahead. Be reading along as you prepare to come to listen. Because we're going to highlight the main points of it, but we're not going to cover every little detail of every little verse in this. Otherwise, it's just going to get redundant. But Exodus is worth studying because, again, we see the glory of God revealed. We see God's law given and just how holy our God is. So here in Exodus 1 and 2, as we come to study them, here's what I think 
is the main point of Exodus 1 and 2. Despite the challenges of life, Christian, know that God will move heaven and earth to keep his covenant with you. Despite the challenges of life, Christian, know that God will move heaven and earth to keep his covenant with you. And we're going to unfold this in three points. Point number one, God's oppressed people. Point number two, God's chosen deliverer. And point number three, God's faithful love. So let's look at God's oppressed people in point number one. In the first seven verses, it starts just like a movie trilogy would start with recapping what has gone on. Star Wars is the best illustration of this. And in the beginning of Star Wars movies, you've got the running screen as it goes up and telling you this is where we're at. This is what's happened. And the same with the opening of Exodus. It's telling us, here's how the people of Israel got here. It's the continuation of that. It's saying, here, Joseph was already in Egypt. The people had come to Egypt because of this famine. They've come here. And then they die. But as they die, we're given hope. It says there in verse 6 and then 7, Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Exodus is, is one of those books that if you know Genesis, the better you're going to know Exodus. Because there's the same author wrote both. Moses wrote the whole of the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He wrote all five of these books. He's the author of it all. And he alludes back to previous things he's already written. So even here in Genesis 1-7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, or they were fruitful and multiplied. This is picking up six different times it was used in the book of Genesis. It was used in Genesis 1-22 and 1-27. It was used again in Genesis 9 just as Noah and his family came off the ark, it was used twice there. It was used elsewhere. The people of Israel are doing exactly what God had promised. They're being fruitful and multiplying even after the death of Jacob, the last of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are no more, and yet they're being fruitful and multiplied. God's promise is still there. The people are multiplying. They're growing. God is making a great nation of Abraham and his descendants. So much so that a people that should have been revered and remembered are quickly forgotten. Joseph here single-handedly saves Egypt from famine. Egypt would have been wiped out had it not been for Joseph and his vision and his wisdom in storing up that God had given him. Joseph should have had statutes. Joseph should have had at least the very thought of remembering. Here's what Joseph did to help us. And yet, he's quickly forgotten. We read in in verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
Here's the irony of this. They, they knew, the Pharaoh, the new king of Egypt, knew he got money from all the Egyptians because they had all sold everything off to Pharaoh at the hands and wisdom of Joseph. So, so the king would have, should have at the very least wondered, why am I getting all this money from all these Egyptians? How, how did this decree, this law come? And yet in his own pompous pride and arrogance, he doesn't care. He doesn't care to remember. He doesn't care how he's getting it. He's getting it. And he begins to oppress the people instead of remembering the ones who were used to save him. So a once revered and, and exalted people and the people of Israel, especially that of Joseph. Remember, he was second in command to that of Pharaoh. There was none above him but Pharaoh. His people were given the land of Goshen to, to dwell in. And yet this new king, this new pharaoh, forgets Joseph. He did not know Joseph. And look what happens in verse 9 as he forgets. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. There's also a lot of irony in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, over and over again, it's going to show the pompous pride of the Egyptians, at least in, in the first half of Exodus. It's going to show the folly of worldly wisdom and thinking, the weakness of worldly strength. Here, a nation such as Egypt, we, we think of Egypt today, we don't give a lot of thought of power. We think of, of Russia as being powerful, or China, or the United States. We don't think as much of, of Egypt being a land of power, but in, in that day, Egypt was the most powerful. It was the dominant nation there was. And here, this new pharaoh, this new king, rises to power, and he's fearful of this Israelite people. These sojourners who are dwelling in their land, he's fearful of them. He's fearful of the number that is coming from them because they're multiplying so fast. He thinks, you know what? This nation's about to wipe us out if they, they were to align with our enemies. They're going to overtake us. The most powerful nation is concerned about a tiny nation of Israel because remember, they were 70 persons. Yes, they're multiplying, they're growing, but they're still small compared to that of Egypt. They're fearful of them. This new Pharaoh is so fearful, he takes action. He says there in verse 11, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. So they begin to, to load them up so that they can't multiply more. They think, you know what? We take away their free time. We take away their time of pleasure. And they're not going to have time to bear more children. They're not going to have time to, to procreate. They're not going to have time to increase. Because we're going to work them so hard that they can't do it. So their numbers, numbers will start to dwindle. But, the, but notice what comes. One of those, the Bible is full of glorious buts. And I mean B-U-T's. They're, they're full of glorious buts. There in verse 12. But 
The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Even as the Egyptians began to oppress the people of Israel, it doesn't work. The plans of the enemy, the plans of the seed of the servant, the plans of the Egyptian king does not work because he can't stop what God is doing. God has promised that Abraham will be fruitful and multiply, that he will be the father of a great nation, and that he will be a blessing to the nations. So even as this worldly wisdom, this worldly power thinks it's going to oppress and overthrow this, this people, it backfires on them. The people of Israel continue to grow. They continue to increase despite the oppression put upon them. So they think, okay, now maybe we need to oppress them more. Now we'll enslave them. Now we'll, we'll make them servants. It goes on to say uh, there in, in verse uh, 14 that, or uh, find myself, yeah, 14, and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all in all kinds of work in the field and all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Again, Moses keeps pointing back to Genesis. Mortar and brick. Guess who used mortar and brick? It was those that aimed to build a tower in Babel. It was the seed of the serpent that aimed to make a name for themselves. Egypt is trying to make a name for themselves the same way that the people of Babel wanted to make a name for themselves. Wanting to build that mortar and brick to build this tower. That's the same work that they're, they're enslaving the people of Israel to, to build this great name for the Egyptians. The Egyptians are trying to make a name for themselves. But here's the irony. Scan all through Exodus. Guess what? You don't find the name of Pharaoh at all. The names of Pharaoh is never mentioned. We know Pharaoh's from history of Ramses and different things. But in the Bible, it's never recorded who the names of the Pharaohs are. But who is recorded? Look in verse uh, 16 or 15. Then the king of Egypt said to Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiva and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stool, oh, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. These two lowly midwives are remembered. Their names are recorded. So the people that is, is seeking to make make a name for themselves, they're not even recorded in the history of the Bible. And yet two lowly midwives are because of their faith. A clear distinction is being made between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Egypt is out of the seed of the serpent. Israel is the seed of the woman, one that is being called to act in faith. The seed of the serpent it is so wicked, it begins to think, okay, this enslaving's not working, they're still increasing, so you know what? I, as Pharaoh, I'm going to kill all these baby boys, and I'm going to do it quietly. Hey, midwives, come here. Here's what you need to do. You're going to kill every baby boy born, but you're going to let every daughter live. Do this. Because he was so fearful of the people of Israel, he did not want to see them grow 
and overcome him and the people of Egypt. But you know, this culture of death is not limited to just the Bible. We live in a culture of death even now, all around us. Look at the rise of abortion. Look at the the increase of, of the idea of euthanasia, of taking life at a planned and set time. Thankfully, right now, I don't think it's legal in Illinois. I could be wrong. But some of you may at one point be faced, you know what? I'm just tired of fighting. Let me just inject myself and schedule it out to die. That's a culture of death. A culture of death in which, uh, based on, on gender, it is limited to who lives and who dies, to based on chromosomes, who lives and who dies. Our, our culture celebrates death in such a way that abortion continues to rise. It rises because uh, of the chromosomes and, and of uh, genetic dysfunctions. It rises because uh, of those who, who want to continue to live in sexual harmony ascuity and not bear the consequences. It, it lives because somebody thinks, you know what, I've had this action, but I don't know if I'm ready to be a mom or a dad. The culture of death continues to grow. And it's a sign of the seed of the serpent. A culture of death should never be celebrated. No matter what the enemies are doing. No matter what's at stake. A culture of death is never that of God. God is the one who is the creator of life, the sustainer of life. And yet the seed of the serpent is all about this culture of death. But again, the plans backfire. Their aim to wipe out a people backfires because he, the Pharaoh, the new king of Egypt, counts on these, wives, or these midwives being fearful of him. But notice who it says. Another glorious but in, in the book of Exodus there in 117. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But the, let the male children live. These two midwives, these two named sisters feared God more than they did that of the king of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you something. Who do you fear? Do you fear man more than you do God? Do you fear the consequences that it may cost me my job to live out my faith? It may cost me uh, reputation to, to live out my faith, to share my faith. What are we fearing instead of God? God should be the one we fear over everything and should drive every action we do, even in the midst of oppression. Brothers and sisters, it's one thing to suffer in this world and then to depart and be with Christ. But to thrive in this world, the, the midwives could have just thrived in Egypt. They could have, have been under Pharaoh's pleasure and, and they could have been rewarded if they would have just gone and killed. But now they're questioned by Pharaoh because they're faithful. They're put to the test. Why? Why do you do this? It, they're in 18... It, says, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? They're put to the test. They're put on trial in question. But they don't care because they fear God. Christian, we need to fear God above all else, even in the midst of oppression. 
Even as we're waiting to see, okay, God, what are you doing through this? We need to fear God and know that He is at work, that He is the sovereign one, that He alone is worthy of such fear. No worldly power is worth fearing because we stand with the one who wins it all. We should not fear any political power. We should not fear any source of power because we stand with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's fear God and love Him. The oppression doesn't stop here. So Pharaoh's attempts to oppress the people continue to be foiled. He tries to do so through the killing of lives. He tries to do so through oppression and slavery. But it goes on here in 19. The, the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth. So, so whether the, the midwives are, are telling a little white lie or not is not the issue. So, some of us like to get focused on, did the midwives lie? It doesn't matter. Whether it's because they, they told Pharaoh a fib and, and they were going anyways and just didn't do it. Or whether it was that they were telling the Hebrew women and saying, hey, don't call me until absolute last minute. So that I don't have to follow through with this. Either way, they're fearing God and being faithful. And that's our call. We're to fear God and do what he's commanded and instructed, not what the world calls us to. But because of their faithfulness, God deals well with these midwives. He gives them families of their own. And the people of God continue to increase and multiply. So all through this, no matter the oppression, God is sovereignly at work through it all. Even though he's not mentioned, he's sovereignly working to piece it all together. And Christian, here, here's where the thrust of point one goes for us. Just because oppression and opposition are at work does not mean we stop pressing onward. We learn to trust in the almighty sovereign God as he is at work, even in the moments of quietness, even when we can't see him. We trust in him. We show patience in, in doing the things he has called us to. Yes, there's going to be suffering. The New Testament Christian knew a life of suffering. Suffering is not the sign that you're working against God. In fact, the absence of suffering is probably meaning you know nothing of God. If your life is going so easy and so well, you think, man, nothing's going wrong. You're probably working actually according to the world and Satan needs not worry about you because you're so caught up in the treasures of this world that you care nothing or little of God. Suffering is the sign that the enemy is working against. The seed of the serpent, the snake, wants to devour you. And therefore, in the midst of that, we stand firm. We trust God because he's at work through it all. He's at work strengthening our own faith in him, saying, okay, God, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get what you're doing. Show me, help strengthen my faith, but I'm going to trust in you through it. Fearing him, just as those Hebrew midwives did. Let us fear God, even in the midst of oppression, even in the midst of suffering. Because our God is at work.
His plans will not falter. The plans of the enemy, though, will. Satan's best efforts were halted here in Egypt. And so they will be in the end. King Jesus is coming, and victory is already his. Satan has his best efforts at destroying us and our faith. But he will not win. The seed of the serpent has already been crushed by the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Let's trust in it. Now, shifting to point two, let's look at God's chosen deliverer. Here again, all throughout Exodus, Genesis allusions are taking place. Here, Moses is, is put in, in a basket in a uh, Put in the river as the people are told, not just the midwives go and kill the children, the male children. Now all the people of Israel, or Egypt are to go and kill these male children. The, the decree there in 122 is for all the people to take this action. So it's no longer just the midwives. So as they try to limit these children, as they continue to try and oppress... Here Moses is put in, a Levite of Levites, is put into a basket and sent down the Nile River with his sister watching. But there's much irony in this. Because the same Hebrew word used for the basket described here in Exodus 2 for Moses, guess where else that Hebrew word is found? It's found in the ark. The same Hebrew word is there for both. Moses is put into a mini ark down the water to be spared as his contemporaries are destroyed. As they're destroyed by water. Because they're called to be cast there in 122 into the Nile. Moses is spared through the waters just as Noah and his family were in the ark. Moses is being shown to be the new Noah. The new one to come and deliver the people. The new one to come and save his people. So Moses is spared, but not only that, his sister comes forward and, and says that as Pharaoh's daughter finds favor on Moses, she has pity or compassion upon him. Pharaoh's daughter comes forward. Shall I go and get a, a Hebrew mother to, to nurse your child? And she said, yes. So the sister goes and gets her mom, Moses' mom, and she's actually paid and benefits from raising her own son as he's spared from the Nile. Great irony in this. You think Egypt has got it figured out, all their plans continue to crumble. And yet here's God's chosen deliver, chosen one he's going to use to deliver his people out of this oppression, being spared through the waters. God is at work there in the birth of Moses. But he's at work further. Because look in there in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian being, being a Hebrew, one of his people. So Moses is spared just like that of Noah. But he also has a heart for his people. He identifies with his people. I hope light bulbs are going off. Who else identifies with their people? Does Christ not come and take on human flesh to be like us? 
to, to face every temptation we face so that he can identify with us? Moses is being shown to be a deliverer of the people because he identifies with his own people. He grew up in the house of Pharaoh. He grew up knowing the ways of the Egyptians better than any. And yet he identifies with his own. He identifies with that of the people of Israel. He identifies with them to deliver them. So he intercedes for his people. He has a heart for his people. He, he delivers the Hebrew from cruelty from one of the Egyptian oppressors. He intercedes. He, he kills him. Yeah, Moses isn't. He isn't Jesus. He's not Jesus the pre-incarnate. He's not any of that. But he, he's a type pointing us forward to the Savior. Moses struggles like the rest of us. He should have probably not killed the Egyptian. He wasn't ready for it. But he... he works to intercede for his people, even if that means knocking out the enemy. He wants to identify and help them. He wants to alleviate them from that suffering. So he does it the only way he knows how in the moment, to strike the Egyptian. And he, he thinks it's, it's not known because he's, he's turned and hit his, and made sure no one was watching. But the next day he goes out again, again wanting to identify with his people, again wanting to to help alleviate and change things up, help them out of this oppression. And as he does so, he sees two of his own arguing. So he acts again as a, a moderator, at one to, to intervene, to intercess for them and say, what are you doing fighting one another? Why are you fighting your own people? So he intercedes for them. He interjects for them. And of course, then they stand against him. Again, it should make us click with Jesus. How many times did Jesus try and teach those in his days and they reject him? The people of Egypt rejected Moses and this won't be the last time. They're over and over again going to say, Moses, what have you done? You've made things worse, not better. But Moses is now forced to flee. He's forced to, to identify with his people as he has to do his own exodus, as he has to do his own fleeing for safety. He goes and settles in the land of Midian. But once more, he's shown to be a deliverer, uh, one who is going to deliver his people. There in Midian, he, he comes and sits down by, by a water trough and, and shepherds come and, and run seven daughters out and, and Moses intervenes for them. He delivers them, saves them from these shepherds. He provides water for them. He, he does their work for them. Again, pointing to Christ. We don't have to do the work because another came and did it for us for salvation. Jesus came to do the work so that we could be saved by faith and faith alone. Our works do not save us. The daughters did not save themselves. Moses did. And so Jesus Christ saves us. Exodus is full of these illusions pointing us forward to the gospel. The gospel is all over. Honestly, this morning I felt so inadequate preparing to come and preach this. I still do because there's so much here. And yet, it's so beautiful. Brothers and sisters, we should see the gospel all throughout Exodus. It should encourage our hearts to be strengthened that God is at work. 
He's working all things out to His purposes to deliver His people. And He does so through His chosen servant. One who identifies with His people. One who intercedes for His people. One who acts as an advocate. One who saves His people. And notice here, at the end of of Exodus uh, 2 here, before it goes into the final three verses, there in verse 21 it says, And Moses was content to dwell with a man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Above all, Moses was a man of faith. He was the chosen servant of God. Because ultimately he believed God's purpose. It wasn't actions of Moses that made him God's chosen. It was his faith in God. He believed God's promise to Abraham. When it says, I am a a sojourner in a foreign land. He's looking forward to that land of promise. That was promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. That land flowing with milk and honey. That great day when the people would flourish and fill the earth. They would be a blessing to the nation. He's looking forward to that while he's in exile. He's waiting on it. He's waiting for that day. And that's what he names his son. So even in the name of his son, he shows us his faith. His faith and trust in the promises of God. Christian, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of grief, in the midst of living life in a broken world, the thing that should keep us going is our eyes set on the promised land. Casting our eyes and saying, On Jordan's stormy banks where my possessions lie. Wow. That's our hope. The hope in the midst of it all. The hope in the midst of waiting. Is setting our eyes on the promises of God. And trusting that he will act. That he will fulfill those promises. So Moses. God's chosen deliverer. Is one who acts. For his people, he intercedes for them, he cares for them, he delivers them. And we're going to see that throughout the whole of the story of Exodus. But mostly we need to see Moses' faith. His continued trust in God, even when things don't look good. Moses continues to persevere in that holding out for the hope of the promised land. Christian, let us set our eyes on our own promised land, which we will enter those pearly gates and be with Jesus for all eternity. That's our hope. That's why we keep fighting and striving in the midst of it all. We don't fight so we can be comfortable in this world. We fight for the comforts we know we will have in heaven with Jesus. That's our promise. That's our hope. Let's keep our eyes there. But above all, we need to see that God acts in faithful love because that only strengthens our faith and our comfort. So point number three, God's faithful love. Read verses 23 through 25 with me. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abram, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, 
and God knew. When it says God remembered, it's not saying God had ever forgotten. It's not saying that God was just absent and careless and not calculating, not working. What we need to see above all, it says the people cried out to God. He heard them. Up to this point, there's no mention that they had cried out to God. But when they did, he heard them and he knew it was time to act. Time to keep his promise and to show them that he is the faithful, loving God. Brothers and sisters, when we cry out to God, we have assurance. But some of us, our biggest need is the fact that we don't actually cry out to God. We don't cry out to God to be at work in our hearts and conform us more to Jesus. We're too busy praying for, for health concerns, which is not wrong in itself, but, but our eyes need not set in this world and, and how we feel in this world. We need to be set, Lord, conforming more to you. Make me more like my Savior, who bled and died. The man of sorrows, who was pierced for our transgressions. Let us cry out to Jesus and say, conform me more to your likeness, to your image, so that I can walk in holiness and godliness, so that I can love you with all my heart, soul, and mind, so that I can put idols to death, that it can no longer be about me, but about loving you and loving others. Brothers and sisters, we need to cry out to God, even within these pews. Because we still are not yet glorified. And until we are, we need to keep crying out to God that we would grow more in His likeness. But also, we need to be helping others because they don't know their need to cry out for Jesus. They don't know their need of a Savior until they hear that they are sinners fallen short of the glory of God. So how is a world to come to Jesus and to cry out to Jesus if they know nothing of Jesus? Brothers and sisters, we need to go and take the gospel to the peoples so that they hear the gospel, so that they can cry out. Because too many people hear of, you know what, you, you need to just pray this prayer, ask Jesus into your heart without ever understanding why. Jesus didn't come to just tack onto our lives. He, he died so that he could bring us from death to life. If you've been dumped in the baptistry, you know that. The very symbol of baptism is dead yourselves and rise anew in Christ. That's the hope of the gospel. To be made new in Christ. People need to hear why they need Jesus. If you've not yet picked up one of the What is the Gospel little booklets, Greg does this better than anyone, uh, of making the gospel clear, showing that we must start first with God, then the fall, our need in Jesus, here's the answer in Jesus, and now our response. He does that well, and that's a helpful little gospel track to help you share that with others. But maybe even to encourage your own heart in it. We can cry out to God, and He answers. So as you sin, cry out to God and confess that sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He will forgive us. We have an advocate with the Father in Jesus. Confess our sin. Cry out to God. Cry out to God 
for those strained relationships. Cry out to God for those things that need mending. Cry out to God to know what it is He would have you do in faithfully following Him. Brothers and sisters, the book of Exodus is just getting started here in chapters 1 and 2. It's getting started to show us that our God would move heaven and earth to keep His covenant with us. There is nothing that will stop Him. All we need to do is call out to Him. Trust in Him. Rest in Him. No matter how shaky things get, we can trust in our God because He will keep His covenant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your grace to us in Christ. We thank You for the hope we have in Jesus. And Lord, I pray that if any are here this morning and they don't yet trust in Jesus, that they would. That they would see the, He is the only hope in life and death. God, give them that faith. And Lord, strengthen ours. Strengthen us in the moments of our weakness. Strengthen us in the moments uh, of doubting You. Help us to know You are near and that You are at work. God, we pray and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.